Good morning, Sir Hepla. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. I just I realize I say that every time because we, we podcast in the morning um, because you are up at like 4.30 a.m. or something like that. That's true. That's a true yeah. fact about me. Yeah. I'm up a little later, but we're, we're always both ready to roll by like 8 o'clock uh, East Coast time. So I do my are. best work between like the, the hours of 4 and 9 a.m. Oh, so I wrote a little novel a million years ago. If you want to get it, it's called The Bad Mother. It's on Amazon. And um, I, my daughter was young at the time, and I have to get her to preschool um, or kindergarten or whatever. And I got up at four every morning and worked for like three hours. And that's how I wrote it. I, yeah, I'm, I, I, my, my daughter is a night. She likes to work like in the night. Her dad was the same way. I'm definitely, most writers, I think, are morning. I used to be a night person. I mean, that would, that really went along with my drinking life. You know, I, I loved the hours that were, you know, dark and quiet and felt like it was just sort of like the world was shutting down and I was getting started. I, I loved that as a young woman, but something definitely switched in me in my thirties and I reversed course. And now I'm in bed at 10 o'clock and I wake up at 4.30 generally. Well, the, the morning is kind of like before it's light out, it's the same kind of feeling. Like there's no, there's no, nobody else. You're just like by yourself and the world is instead of, is just waking up anyway. So I have a, I have a smoking diary that uh, I'm going to put out though, that is about some of the night visitors that I've gotten during those hours. You mean like night creatures? Uh, this is a tease. You're okay. going to have to oh, listen. Tease. Speaking of a tease, we just, um, it, by the time this comes out, which will be, today is Wednesday. I don't know if this will come out Thursday or Friday, something like that. Um, we do have a, we just now posted an episode. We're calling them the Smoke Show Specials. These are subscriber-only episodes. Um, so guys, we're going to be giving you content, but some of it's going to be a little bit behind the paywall because, because I got to keep the lights on. That's that's how it is, right? I gotta keep my cat alive. You gotta, yeah. We like. We, the, I have Do it needs. for Wallace. We have I'm gonna needs. put a picture of Wallace in the episode <laughs> notes so that you guys can see the adorableness that you're supporting. Okay, so um, can I tell you a few things about some of the stories that you've written recently? You may. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um. You wrote a couple stories that I wanted to comment on. One was a piece that you wrote uh, and put in our, you sent out to Smoke'em subscribers. So I just want to give a plug for this if you didn't get a chance to read it. It's called The Camera and the Audience. It's a really beautiful essay about your early 20s attempts to be an actress, which is a very specific and fascinating thing. You, you try out for Purple Rain at one point, the the yeah. the. <laughs> Prince movie, Purple Rain. Um, so that in itself is sort of is sort of a fascinating artifact. But I think this is also like a really profound depiction of what it is to kind of live a life that feels like people are watching you all the time, which is a distinctly, I think, 20th century phenomenon. Um, where movies and television had shaped the experience so deeply. Um, uh, also, I, I, I related to so much of this. You know, I never pursued acting professionally uh, for a variety of reasons, but so much of our younger years are uh, run parallel. And one of the things that delighted me was that your parents called you Sarah Bernhardt, which was also my nickname. 
Yeah, I think for a lot of us of a certain generation, um, it's funny because when I posted that, we got some comments or people sent me emails saying, oh my God, that the same, I was the same. I right. felt that I had a camera on me all the time. Yes. So it's not an unusual uh, experience, I guess. No, I think it's actually a wonderful example of what I call what I call Hepala back off what's called the shock of recognition. Um, you know, like there are these things that literature can do that identify things that you never knew other people did. Yeah. Um, you thought were uniquely your own. And this is one of the things that books and stories do because they, they give you a special insight into what it is to live under the skin. You know, this is not necessarily something you can see in a visual medium like movies or television, but the experience of what it is to live inside the mind is something that literature does so well. And so this was, I'd never read a story about this. Uh, I, I loved it. Um, also I had to, uh, resist telling you my story about seeing a musical last time on our last episode, you told the story of seeing My Fair Lady and coming home and breaking into song. So my first hit was the musical Annie. Oh, when I was I've about, never seen, but I, I question what it is. When I was seven years old mm -hmm. and I came home and I was like, the sun'll come out. You know, like <laughs> just like, <laughs> how can I be an orphan? How can I get how can I ditch these parents so somebody else can <laughs> swoop me up into their mansion? Mm -hmm. Um I wrote this like, uh, I think my first book is a trivia book about Annie. I decided I was going to try to, I did this with a friend of mine. We, we, uh, I'd seen Annie like three or four times. I had this sweetest father who would take me to whatever, he doesn't, he doesn't say much, but he would take me to a movie of my choice every weekend. This was like my oh. thing that I got to do. And every weekend I was like, Annie. And he was like, let's go. And so that poor guy sat through Annie, you know, four or five times. And I was starting to acquire like trivia about it. So I created this Annie trivia book. Uh, I remember that one of the questions was how many curls are on that lead actress's hair head, which was a horrible thing for me to set up. I, I sat there trying to count them. Um, that, that never made it out into the world. Anyway, sorry. Um, I wanted to just say something in, in terms of dads and their daughters. My So my daughter was born in 1989. So of course there were like videos easily to watch. She made her dad watch the movie Never Been Kissed with her 39 times and he sat through it every time. Oh my goodness. Just, you know. The yes. special awards to the dads watching. For, and, and the moms too. But for whatever reason in my household, movies were the thing I did with my dad because my mom was uh, going to graduate school at the time and, and developing her career as a therapist. So these were weekends when my dad and I were together. And this was what we did together. We watched movies. It's also, yeah, my daughter and movies completely. We actually went the other day when we were driving back from Oklahoma, we stopped in um, outside of Wheeling, West Virginia and saw Maverick and we went to the movies. And the next day we were, you know, continuing east. And she said, you know, mom, I didn't realize I haven't been going to the movies for the past couple of years. Her dad died in 2019. And of course there was COVID. So, but 
she said, because movies are what I did with daddy. And they would go to movies yeah. like on weekends when she was little, he'd take her to the multiplex and they'd go to a movie yeah. and then they'd like sneak into another movie. Like they Fun. did this. And I think I remember like when it was just she and I and little and living and all the Disney movies are out. I listened to all these movies, but I was always doing something else. I was like in the kitchen cooking or I was doing this or I was working on something. I didn't have like the sort of I felt like there were other things to do than just sit and watch The Lion King again. But dudes, right. in my experience, are just so much more able to do one thing at a time, which is so beautiful. And I'm so jealous. I am totally. so jealous of being able to just, like, sit and do one thing. And um, and that's what, you know, the dads, they, they do with their little girls, so— yeah. I want to quote you to yourself again. This is a this is a <laughs> this is a sentence that I really loved from your essay. I never tell people I'm an actress because I think it should be obvious and also because I feel protective of it. It's not a thing you take out and flap around. It's too tender and might not survive. I love this because I also think this is very very common for people who feel like they're a writer. And I just love that phrase. It's not a thing you take out and flap around. Let's give, let's give the writers out here a bit of advice, which I know you are going to agree with. If you are working on a project, do not take it out and flap it around. Yeah. Do not do that. You will, it doesn't, it will not help and it may serve to kill it. Again, that little tiny novel I was writing, I was out with um, a gal who's an editor in LA and then this kind of well-known fiction writer. And I, they were like, what are you working on? I was like, oh, I'm just working on a, a book, which was fine. You can say that. But they said, what is it about? And this is a long time ago. Uh, the what is it about? I told them. Kill me now. I, I literally, it was like I had taken the baby and left it out in the open, like a, right. on, on, on the tundra overnight. And when I got back, it was just about dead. And I could not work on it for a long time. And I don't know, look, people are going to say like, what is this, this stupid, like juju you're talking about? So I think, I don't know what it is. Don't tell me I'm not in charge. Do not take your work out and flap it around. It's got to get to a certain point. And then you can, my, uh, my late father-in-law, Tim's dad used to say in his great, Will Sampson, do it, then talk about it. Okay. You know, and and this makes me feel like if there if a thing is tender to you, period, not just a piece of writing, do not take it out and flap it around. You know, I think I I come from this, you know, full disclosure background of like, I'm going to tell everyone everything. And what I've learned mm -hmm. is that when things matter to me, I I keep it to myself for a little bit. You know, like I, I'm totally now a believer in like do it and then talk about it. Um, it's also, the thing is that it's also like a lot of stuff, like your personal life, it's really not anybody else's business. And I got, okay, I had something so weird happen last night. I, okay. I actually need to hear your opinion about this. Cause you hang out with like, I mean, I have a lot of friends that are young and in their twenties, but I have never in my entire life, I've never experienced this. I was at a bar. I was waiting for Matt. We were going to have a drink. And there were three people sitting next to me at the bar, and they were probably late 20s, maybe around 30. One guy, two guys, and one girl. And this one guy was talking about his girlfriend, and then, you know, she hadn't gotten back to him, and he couldn't really understand it. And, you know, she had this ex-husband, and they, but they were divorcing. But, you know, she told me she didn't really like him, but they were having real sex still, and I don't really understand. It's like on and on. And the other girl and the guy like, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And I had never heard a man talk like this oh, in my life interesting ever i've heard 
girls talk like this. This sort of like, I don't know, and maybe this is happening, and this and that. and Look at these text messages. Help me analyze them. Exactly. And friends like chiming in, well, maybe it's this, and you know, maybe he really does like you, but it's blah, 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 blah. blah. And someday, maybe even this episode, I'm going to tell you the broken hand story. But in any case, I couldn't, I was so, it was so foreign. It was so foreign to hear a man speaking like this. So is this a generational thing? Is this just sort of a weird anomaly? Well, I think that what you're seeing is the way that in particular uh, technology and and those forms of communication have shaped us. I think that texting in particular has made low-key paranoics of us all. Um, you know, you, you don't get texted back. You want to know why, what's going on. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. It was so, it was so, it was just very unusual. It was very unusual. Um, anyway, not that interesting. I, your, your essay reminded me of, or, or came to mind when I saw this morning on Twitter, a piece linked, um, that was so fascinating. It was from 2003 and it was about the country of Bhutan, the Buddhist country okay. in the Himalayas. Mm-hmm. And it was about a story about how um, four years before that, they had been the last nation in the world to get television. Whoa. And it's how it changed their society. And they had this huge crime wave of murder and fraud and drug <gasps> use because people started imitating the behavior that they saw on these television shows. And it's this fascinating study you know there's there's they they quote uh somebody writing a letter to the editor dear editor tv is very bad for our country it controls our minds and makes us crazy the enemy is right here with us in our own living room people behave like the actors and are now anxious greedy and discontent i mean this is really funny i i i grew up in the 80s when uh the Parents Music Resource Center, which was run by Tipper Gore, was an attempt to push back on a lot of the 80s lyrics that were very highly sexually charged in nature. And it was one of these first like free speech um, uh, culture war issues. It was. uh, Yeah. And and and, you know, I was 10 years old. These were all the artists that I loved. It was like Prince and Madonna and Twisted Sister and. I, of course, was like, no, these are the best songs. Uh, but I, 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 I think that it would be wrong to say that we weren't profoundly shaped by this, the pop culture that we grew up around. Uh, that's something that, that emerges in my, my story about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, this idea that I think of celebrity and, as a kind of religion, and it's an instruction in how to be and, and how to behave. I think for a lot of us, the movies were uh, a primary moral instruction and a way to see the world. I'm reminded of the detail you used in the uh, trauma piece that you love so much that you want to marry it. Um, yeah, the trauma <laughs> plot. Uh, that, that PTSD was not a thing before there were movies. The people flashbacks. didn't have flashbacks. People didn't, didn't have, have flashbacks. flashbacks until there were movies. So, you know, so in in other words, you know, we grew up in, an, uh, in, a, in a culture that was largely unreflected about the way that movies and television had shaped it. 
Uh, there were certainly pushback moments. But we are now entering a world where technology is shaping us. And later generations will grow up unreflected about how it shapes them, too. Uh, this is just sort of one of my pet fascinations. So, Well, I just want to add one thing to that. So, yes, of course, TV shows, you know, there's a life that bleeds, it leads, and they want to make things sensational and all this stuff. So you do see a lot of violence. But, you know, you also see beautiful things on TV. And in Bhutan, I'm sure they also saw that. Like, maybe they had, like, Julia Child cooking or because it was, I'm thinking, like, whatever era it was, or maybe they had like a love story. So, you know, 2003, it, it mentions that they had uh, that the root, the, the Rupert Murdoch channels were especially prominent. And 2003 really is the like, like very high tide for reality TV, okay. um, which is not the most noble of our genres. No, I, I as, and, as, as uh, the person who wrote the real world book. Yes, I, I know. <laughs> yeah. 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 So anyway, I mean, I, I certainly uh, do believe that that um, television can be uh, beautiful moral instruction as well. So it, 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 it certainly goes both ways. Um, but I grew up in a household where my, my television was highly monitored by a woman that believed this was going to uh, crater my world. And what did she know? She made a television addict out of me. Yeah. My mom still still unwinding this this thing, <laughs> this thing where she she had such strict rules on my behavior that I then came to become obsessed with the thing that she put behind the paywall, as it were. Um, I also want to mention a story that you wrote on Paloma that I think you're going to maybe send out on Smoke'em too, which is called The Doom Crusades. And it's it's about the sort of tragic story of Felicia Sanmez. We've, we've spoken about that on our podcast. Um, this is a story that is... Uh, compassionate at its root about a story that many people have a certain amount of cackling glee about. Uh, yeah. There was a line that I, I particularly loved. I saw her in my mind in the hold of a darkened ship, running from peephole to peephole, looking for any available site from which to fire off another shot. That's you sort of talking about the experience of Felicia Sonmez on Twitter, looking for, you know, looking for her opportunity to, to, to get a hit. Uh, you go on to bemoan the idea of, you know, people's unwillingness to look others in the eye um, and to instead fashion our insecurities and failings into contemptuous remarks, the little slicing tools that they are. Nancy, have I ever told you that I love the way you write? Thank you, Sarah Heppelup. Back at you. I, I want to, um, I, I don't know if this will be interesting to uh, listeners or not, but how did that story come about? So obviously I've been following Sonmas for a number of years. I've been extremely critical of her behavior, mostly um, about Jonathan Kamen and what she did to him. Um, and um, anyway, people can read the piece and you can see my, my links and, and thoughts about that. But the way this really sort of gelled is um, when I was on uh, Bill Schultz's TV show, um, which we've been on together a few months ago, and it was mentioned that you know a marriage is destined to is going toward divorce when the parties start speaking to each other in public with contempt. This hurt me so much. The idea that um, that people would do that, that you would speak to the person you're supposed to be keeping safe. And I, I understand that marriages go bad. Absolutely. Of course, things happen and it's not going to be good. But to speak to them in public with contempt, I, I felt like it just, it hurt me so much. So I was carrying that around 
for a few months. And I also knew after Sonmez was fired, I knew I had to write something about her. I've been writing about her for years. She's part of a something that I'm working on now. And um, and so that's really what kicked it off. And and I also saw the joy um that people were getting um from her literally melting down in public to the point where I I put something on Twitter. I said, you know, I have mixed feelings about what's going on here. I, I thought she should be fired. Yes, she had to be fired, but 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 the the amount of joy people seem to be taking, like, you know, we can bounce and she gets it. And someone said, Oh, are you conflicted between like, you know, loathing and hatred? And I was like, no. No. no, and we no. can't like, we can't like do this to other people. And this is going to, I'm actually going to jump right here. First of all, thank you, Sarah. Hepfula. Oh, sorry. I'll let you finish, but I'm going to jump from here onto the first story that we wanted to talk about. Sure. So a story published it's on the cover of New York Magazine um, this week. I, I don't know the title. You're always better at this. Canceled um, at 17. And it is written by, I believe the writer's name is Elizabeth Wheel. Vile or Wheel, um, W-E-I-L. She's quite um, an accomplished magazine writer. She's, I mean, she's very good. This this piece, it you know, we, we talked last time about how um, writing, like you should be able to tap your foot the entire time through a piece of writing. You should understand there's music, uh, you know, in air quotes, in the way the story is set up to bring you in. It's like, here we are in this story. I'm, I'm making, I'm giving you this story. And she nails it so fast and so beautifully and with such compassion. And I... It, it's the story of a of a young boy. He's seventeen. He was in love with a beautiful girl. They loved each other, and and um, they'd been together for a while. And uh, he one summer night, he was drunk with his friends. And he's, these are like skateboard kids, you know. They're they're kids. And um, I guess he had a picture of her in some form of undress on his phone. And he showed his friends because he's 16 and he's a moron, 17, right? 17, he's 17. 17, right. Because people make mistakes, okay? Also, you're drunk and you're a 17-year-old boy and you've got this picture. I mean, it's good reason to not have naked pictures of yourself on other people's phones. But obviously, she, you know, at one point sent it to him or thought it was fun to take the picture. He shows it. Let's just, I'm not going to go through chapter and verse. His life burnt down. Like, not only did his life burn down in terms of the shunning and the public, um, he, you know, the deliberate public humiliation and on and on and on and on and on for months. He loses and his job. He loses his job. He can't have any friends in school. They don't want him to be in school because they send him to some sort of like special uh independent study because he's a distraction in the classroom or because like people that. can't not do this and the, the 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 signs that are going on the bathroom and what what becomes like so what does it become i showed up this picture and now it's rapist right this is what it is he's and and the complimentary movement that starts in the school amongst mostly one young woman but i obviously there's many many more people involved in this and be like we have to be safe and what's what is the school doing for us and they have walkouts and they they spray paint everything with like rapist and it's just it is literally it it is it's fucking insanity to the point where the counselors and the assistant principal the people that are like trying to help these kids they wind up quitting their jobs because yeah. it is so it is so out of control Meanwhile, this guy's life is he 
at a certain point, he realizes, like, I, I am never, no matter what he does, he apologizes. He writes poetry. He cries. He's depressed. He tries to have recompense. He tries to, like, if can we all sit into, nothing works. His parents are shat on by the community. They lose their friends. It is, it is a fucking shit show because he did something stupid. Okay, so let's just, the idea of grace or forgiveness, forget it. We are fucking done with that, right? We've never... But I was so impressed with the way this article was written, and I wanted to tweet it, which I did. And I was looking right. for her Twitter handle. Couldn't find it. So I typed in her name, and what did I get? You what? got a bloodbath of, blood people, of people absolutely ripping her apart. Say, how can you do that? Like, basically, I hope you fucking die on a pile of bloody knives, you fucker. How in the world can you protect this kid? He will never ever be able to pay enough, ever, no matter what. You can take him for 30 fucking years and beat him in the streets until his skin is bloody wags. It will never be enough. And you know why, Sarah Hapala? Because these people who want this sort of persecution have become addicts, okay? They got a little taste of what it was like to what they feel was some sort of justice. And yes, do people behave badly? And should they apologize? Absolutely. And then we should go on with our lives. But no, because this fucking shit is like heroin. And now they have a giant need inside themselves. They have created an addiction within themselves to seeing other people punished. It's the fucking punishment generation. And that giant hole inside of themselves can never be filled. It's just like a junkie. How much heroin is enough? No amount of heroin is enough because it's you're never going to be satisfied completely. So they are walking around desperately trying to fill themselves up with the fucking destruction of others. These are grown-ass women and men that are loving that this kid is fucking being persecuted and they need more of it. I, I don't even know where to start to help to try to heal these people. The only thing that we can do that I know how to do is to keep talking, to keep these children and people close to me to offer my words, to offer a story like like um, uh, the Doom Crusades, which, which really did land. I mean, people are like, this is a very sad story, and now I'm seeing that as, as a sad story as opposed to an opportunity for glee. I am so, I am almost destroyed at the level of destruction that these people are demanding. So, I have a few thoughts. One is that it's important to point out that this story, which centers on this character named Diego, who's 17, tells other stories along the way. Mm-hmm. It tells the story of the young woman whose picture was shared. It tells the story of the woman that organized, the young woman that organized the walkouts. And it tells the story of a friend that stood by him and eventually was canceled for it. And then the, uh, the principal that eventually leaves. So this is, while it's one person's story, this is also, you know, zooming out to give you a little bit more of the trajectories of other people. And it's really, it's very important to know that none of these people eventually felt served. They, they didn't feel as though this was justice. They didn't feel, um, that, uh, 
this had worked out. I mean, one of the things that you see in this story is a bunch of people behaving cruelly in order to enact a sense of justice that is never felt or met by the people involved. Okay. So I just wanted to mention that. The biggest pushback, Nancy's characterization of the tweets was a tad hyperbolic, (laughs) but only a tad because I was actually a little bit shaken when I went to the Twitter commentary for this. This is the kind of story that I used to read in my in my, you know, 2016, 2017, 2018, shut up and get along days where I would be like, wow, somebody finally said it. And then I would go to Twitter and just see that person getting dragged in a way that looked so horrific. It just was like entirely a cautionary tale on why you shut up. And, you know, seeing these blasts from journalists that I, you know, at one point admired saying, you know, cancel culture isn't a thing. It's only a thing because you keep writing about it. And then, you know, it, it it is so fascinating to me how a cohort of people that understand microaggressions do not seem able to acknowledge the vast carnage that a lot of this behavior has created. And the fear and, and, and the silencing. Anyway, that's a, that's, we have talked plenty enough about that. Um, the, the, the strongest critique that I saw, and I think it's worth spending a little time on, um, is the idea. Well, first of all, there was a lot of resentment that she focused on the male character instead of the female character here, that she was making the young man sympathetic. And, you know, all I can say is that's what I'm here for. Like, I want the world and human behavior to be sympathetic. And I was told after my Atlantic piece that this was my great sin. And so I shall take it. Mm -hmm. Um, I will sympathize with people who made mistakes. I will sympathize with people that drunkenly did dumbass things like show off naked pictures of their girlfriend. I don't, it it was very embarrassing for this young woman. She had trusted him. She broke up with him, which she should have. Um, it, It was a violation of a trust that they had built. It is also in, in my years of spending time with, particularly young people around the release of my book, this is like 2015, 16, 17, there was a lot of panic in the media at the time around teenage sexting. And for good reason. We had given kids a porn do-it-yourself kit, and we didn't really understand that. I wrote a story about that for Wired, which actually wound up in Reason, um, about a kid in Rochester who had... um, his girlfriend had sent him a picture of herself topless and he showed his friends and, and what happened to his life. I will, I'll, I'll put a link to it. It's, it's, it, it actually didn't wind up as terrible as Diego's, um, because we were in a different time at that point. I think this was like 2014, something, something like that. Um, but it was bad. It was, it was bad. And I think the, the effect on young women was, was quite, um, was quite profound. I mean, you know, there were there were these, you know, there were private schools where guys had set up file sharing things to to 
to post pictures that they'd gotten from women. I have over the years had many men share with me photos that they got usually over, not with a girlfriend, but usually over like uh, online dating apps where they're like, look at these pictures this woman just sent me, you know, and it's like pictures of her in the shower, pictures of her topless. And I'm just like, who is doing this? Um, but apparently, you know, a lot of women, uh, not a lot, I, I don't know how many, uh, but a number of women were playing that card. And, you know, I had a lot of concern about younger women that really weren't, none of us was aware, like how these, these new technologies could be weaponized and amplified and would stay with us and nude photos that you share in the intimacy, you know, the intimacy of a relationship might be used differently after that relationship ends. Um, As, so one comment about that. So a, a book we've spoken about before is Fleischman is in Trouble by uh, Tammy. Taffy Britta Sarachner. Yeah. So there's <laughs> this guy is newly single, uh, married, he's newly single now, the child, and he's on a dating app. And he, I mean, I don't know how much he's exaggerating this because <laughs> it's fiction, but he like, Almost every woman that is like saying, oh, we should have a date is sending him pictures of herself naked. Well, wh why is this? Like, these are people he doesn't know. Why Why is this? Well, obviously, and it's fiction, so, but come on. It's, so, it's you know, so Taffy is a married woman, and, and but she's also an amazing journalist. I always got the sense that these were ideas that she'd gotten from friends of hers that were divorced and found themselves, you know, hip deep in a totally different realm where women did send sexy photos. I know that was a huge part of dating collateral. I also think it's exaggerated for comic effect in that book. I mean, I, I, I don't think the idea that you sign up for a site and you suddenly get a bunch of nude selfies um, is really something that was was happening to most people. I also think it was happening. I have um, a question. So let, let me ask you, this is a, just, I don't know why I'm asking this question, but if you're, uh, if you're on a dating site or whatever and you decide you're going to, a guy you don't know and you're going to send him a picture of your, your titties. So you send him a picture. Okay. So, or you're with your lover or whatever and you that you love very much and you he takes a picture of your boobs and mm -hmm. he has that. So I can see how um I can see how the one who's your boyfriend who you love or your husband if he let that out into the world that would be upsetting because that's like a betrayal. If the guy that you didn't even know and yeah. you sent him a picture of your boobs. Yeah. Like, if that made it into the world, I don't know, lady, that's on you. So right? I remember asking a friend of mine, because she used to do this, and I would be like, wouldn't you be upset if this got out? And she was like, no, I look really good. I also don't, like, I know people like, it's weaponized. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. My life will end if the picture of my boobs gets, I mean, frankly, I don't really have pictures of my boobs out in, in, in floating around in cyberspace. But if they did, like, what, the, what do I care? Like, Half of the world, we've said this before, half of the world has breasts. Okay, I did something stupid. My boobs are on the internet. Well, fuck it. Like, I literally would just go on. Like, I, 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 like what? I mean, I know that everybody doesn't feel that mind. way. Keep that in mind if, uh, yeah, if we need to, anyway. Okay, uh, the, the point that I was trying to make, and I, of course, did one of my, you know, long diversions, but um, is that a lot of, uh, a lot of women were also saying, you know, this happened to me much worse 
um, the stories of young women in the 80s and 90s that rumors were started about. They were bullied. They were ostracized. I have a very close friend that ended up leaving my high school because somebody wrote slut on the locker after these ridiculous rumors were started about her. Um, and, you know, there's this idea that high school has always been cruel, okay? This is not a new story. The women took, the women <clears throat> often took the brunt of this during another era. True. And a lot of people were saying, like, I didn't get a New York Times magazine article written about me. Okay. Well, here's the thing it wasn't good then either. That's right. It wasn't good when it happened to you. And, and it's not good when it's happening to this other person. But what's different about this is that it has this, it has the, the, the sort of force behind it of we're doing something good. Right. We're doing this for justice. And uh, that is why it's a, it's, it's a, you know, this is high school cruelty, 2020s version. I understand there's an eternal story that's being worked out here between boys and girls and, and adolescents and their changing bodies and power dynamics in high school and all sorts of things. There's also an environment that's changing around them. And there is a whole arm of Twitter that is in this like sort of gladiator arena chanting for this kid to get ripped to shreds by the lions you know why uh because because they've developed a taste for it they have developed a taste for blood they like it i had um when i posted that story um of a friend of mine who's an attorney and a uh, and a professor he he wrote down something like you know it's really like lord of the flies and some gal that i don't know is like what do you mean teenage boys have been behaving badly forever right. i'm glad he got some consequences and i just answered just like some consequences well what are enough like if you say to them what what is enough what is enough punishment there is no there is no end. We we can go back to Jonathan Kamen um, and 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 Felicia Sonmez. And I remember I'm I'm, I'm going to botch her quote, but Caitlin Flanagan saying on Twitter like, "You have he's lost his job, he lost his book contract, he has no health insurance, and he's living with his parents." You won, Felicia. How much is enough? Well, the answer is it's never enough. It's never enough. And it's like, you know, the whole thing's like, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to put people on a fucking ice floe and push them out to sea? Well, yeah. Basically, yes. Because then, then we will, ostensibly, under this uh, idea, we will only have the good people. Well, guess what, good people? You now, this is the way you operate. This is the way you think any transgression should go. And if it's showing a picture and that guy gets pushed out on the ice floe, well, what's next? Because you've obviously, this is this is how you operate. Well, it's going to get bad. You stole a banana? Sorry, you're going out on the ice floe. I think you looked at my mother in the wrong way? You're going out on the ice floe. Oh, and also, wow, this works. I could just make up something about somebody and everybody else would be like, oh, put them on the ice floe. That's, that is, and if, if people think, this is, I mean, this is ridiculous. I have a friend, I'm not going to name her and I'm not going to name where she works. 
but we had dinner the other night and she works at a, um, one of these places, the crisis management, like something happens to you and they go in and try to fix it. She said the number of false accusations are bananas, completely bananas. Some like guy, he's a CEO somewhere. And all of a sudden there's an accusation that like 14 years ago, he did this thing to me. He has never even met this person. That no, has has nothing to do with this person, and yet it is now something. There is an entire industry that has has risen up to try to protect him from this accusation. Uh, why do people do this? Uh, because they can. The story uh, talks about how they end up writing the the names of several of these boys on the wall. It's basically the high school version of the shitty media men list, which we talked right. about in our smoke show special. Should you want to become a paid subscriber and hear our thoughts on this? Which you definitely should. Um, the accusations, as happens, you know, some of them were like wrong identifications. <laughs> um, and, and there was just a lot of, I don't know if it was grounded in reality or not. One assumes that it was, but you know, like anything, it sort of took some flights of fancy and a disturbingly high percentage of these boys were boys of color. And this is something that sort of, you know, touched upon. And it's definitely like an electric intersection for these stories of Me Too and Black Lives Matter. You know, this is a place where your intersections uh, collide. And there's an interesting moment where one of the moms, who's a black mom, you know, she ends up telling her boy about the Central Park Five, which is the story oh, of yeah. five boys that are wrongfully imprisoned for rape. There's like a whole um, hoax around that. And then she calls the accusers a group of little mini Karens because they're all yeah. white girls. I, so, I, you know, it, to me, this is this is like this is fascinating. This is culture colliding and. Uh, it's so complicated. It has so many levels and layers. Um, the writer calls this, Elizabeth Weil calls this, you know, a primal scream from our high school students. They are not okay. This is all taking place in the context of going back to school after a pandemic. There is an ambient um, fear and sense of no safety and you know this is a this is a place where gosh i feel so hard for parents on this one if you're raising a teenager right now i really feel for you um i will put a link uh in the show notes to joan diddy and wrote about the central park five in a really incredible piece called uh, sentimental journeys it's 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 sort of the the synchron of of what happened in that case um i think i used that <laughs> He's right. I may have used it completely wrong. Um, the parents are interesting because Diego's parents fight very, very hard for him, even though his dad is is really pissed off about the whole photo thing. Yeah. The mom is sort of like interesting. She's like, okay, so that's what it was. Like, it's not something worse. Like, Yeah, the mom's like, phew, I thought this was going to be really bad. You just showed a picture um, to they, boys. They, they try to, you know, on their own to try to fight this. But of course, they're getting like 
practically no people fighting alongside them. I will say I was super proud of the black moms. When this started happening, they're like, "Uh uh-uh, nope. And they started like demanding meetings and going to like city council or whatever meetings they were at school. Like, we are not going to let this stand. I don't know how much success they had, but I will say there's one sort of moment of poignancy, which you, which you touched on, um, is that, so they're, they're writing these boys' names. And it doesn't matter how many times the, the school paints over them. They just get written again because, of course, the, the kids are, that are doing this are addicted to the whole idea that it's a powerful thing and they're changing the world. So some kid writes the wrong kid's name. It's just, a, it's just a totally different guy. He made the mistake. Well, that kid's canceled too. And what happens in the lunchroom is that, you know, the one kid, Diego, who's had to like sit by himself completely, now he's got some other people that are sitting next to him because oh yeah the island of misfit toys island of misfit toys and it's like i you know i okay i already know this about myself and i don't think it's only because i've been uh in the barrel myself um i'm I'm sitting with those kids man i don't give two flying fucks what the other kids say because it because the other kids are wrong that's why the other kids are wrong. I'm sorry. And um, you just you just can't do this. And I I had my own like mean girls story when I was 12 and I and I learned. Can I tell it super yeah, quick? Of course. I went to camp. I was 12 years old, and they put me in this bunk. And then I had a best friend who was in a like she was a year older, so she was in the older girls' bunk. Well, when I'd gone to camp, I had taken a bus from uh from uh, uh, New York City. And there was a kid on the bus with me who was going to camp. He was from Brazil. He was like 15, super cute. English wasn't great. And we sat together for like nine hours going up on the bus. Just like became friends, right? Nine hours on a bus, right? Well, he was the cute boy at camp, okay? And like, we'd all have meals together. Their camp was on the other side of the lake or whatever. It's Maine, right? And um, when we would go across the girl's bus, um, he would see me, be like, Nancy, and we would talk. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, oh, boy. So I'm getting on. And there was like the, the, the other cabin where my friend who was older lived. Uh, there was there was the queen bee, right, of the camp. And she was had her little coterie of girls. And I was um, getting on the bus one day. And she walks past me and she goes, whore. Okay. I didn't know what that word was. I didn't know it. And there was a head of the camp who, to me, looked ancient. She was probably 30. <clears throat> and her, I remember her name was Lila. And I, I, I said, Lila, um, something happened. And this girl called me whore. I don't know what that is. And she just looked at me like, oh, my God. But anyway, I was terrorized by these girls. And my poor friend who was in the bunk with them, she was terrorized by them. And that was my first experience with people that are just going to be unbelievably cruel to you for their own reasons, which sort of jibes with the sentence in my in my piece, um, The Doom Crusade. It's like you're taking your own failings or insecurities yeah. and you fashion them into a knife to use on other people. But how, let me, let me ask you a question. How does that help that girl? How does it help the girl to do that to me? Like, I, I really think you're well, it's a way to seize power because you uh, she was threatened by you in some way. And so she was trying to knock you down a peg. And right. so, you know, like the idea is the idea is just is just sort of like like 
push you down so she can pull herself up. I think it's a I think it's a toxic revenue stream, but I do think it's a revenue stream. And she she gains social collateral. I mean, this is there is so much. This happens in every society, whether there was television or not. Um, you know, ostracizing people, especially the women that that threaten and the men. If you step out of line, you know, like like there's a really I, I do think John Ronson, one of my faves. Uh, so You've Been Publicly Shamed is a book that talks about the use of shame throughout culture, uh, the different ways that we have used that to keep people in check throughout time. So John um, Ronson has been in this studio recording with Michael Moynihan, and I fed him cake in my living room next door. Stop bragging, and you whore. I know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I got jealous. I got jealous and I had to push you down. Is that your pet name for me now? Yeah. In that book, which is a great, guys, you should read that book. Obviously, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. But the one that really, really, I, the story I love so much in that one was that British guy who um, was apparently caught in flagrante delecto, like in some sort of weird sex thing, like, um, I don't know, some like little orgy where he mm-hmm. was, I don't know, in bondage or something like that. And he was a kind of famous guy that wound up all over the tabloids. And he just, he just owned it. He owned it. And then when, and then he sued, I don't know, some paper did something wrong and he won. He's like, I will, I am refusing. I am refusing to wear this shame shirt that you are trying to fit me with. I'm refusing to do it. And that's what you you got to do. You got to sit with the kids that are being persecuted and you have to refuse to wear it when someone's doing it for their own their own reasons that I do not respect. I was thinking about the phenomenon of scrawling names in a bathroom wall and if you grew up in the 80s that is almost inevitably going to summon the idea of girls names written in the bathroom wall. Um there was, in fact, a hit song by Tommy Two-Tone that was about this subject. Do you know what song I'm talking about? Not um, Yep. Jenny Jenny for a good time call. Yeah. And it was like a huge hit song. And it's all, I don't really know what the lyrics are, but the whole idea of it is that he's seen <laughs> this girl's name and her number written in a bathroom. I always felt bad for Jenny's and I always felt bad for uh, anybody. Uh, they must have had to uh, put 8675309 out of business because oh, oh, yeah. sure. maybe, no. we'll, maybe that'll be our outro song or we'll put a link to it at least. Um, um, I'm just saying it was a messed up thing. You know, there, there was just a lot of really, really messed up and glorified male behavior around uh, framing women that were, were considered to be easy or had in some chances, you know, in, in, in some instances made the mistake of trusting opportunistic and brittle young boys who turned around and used this. I, I just I don't want to minimize that part of the past. I just want to reiterate that wasn't right. This and is absolutely this, true. Sorry. And this I mean, isn't either. 
It's, it's, it's true. I mean, I, I even remember this. It's like, oh my God, you've got to be careful of your reputation or, you know, the girl in college that was rumored to have like slept with the entire hockey team, which of course is not fucking true. There, was, there were so many horrific rumors about certain young women in my high school that, you know, now when I look back as an adult and, I, you know, I don't want to get into it, but it would involve Snickers and just the, like urban legends kind of stuff. Snickers, the candy bar? Yeah. Okay. You don't want to know. No, I don't. But, I don't. I don't want to know. But um, the the thing is, is like I look back now, and I'm like, oh my god, this young woman, she's she's hung out with a bunch of guys, and and maybe she liked one of them. Maybe she let somebody do something. Maybe she let none of them do anything, and they were just telling stories. I mean, this is not gender specific. I think that you've made a good point about how women weaponize um, the online media chambers, and I, I think you're you're correct. But I, but I but but this is a human behavior. Yeah, and and, and I, I feel so. I I every once in a while I'll think about these stories that I used to participate in like spreading because there was some sort of dopamine hit that you got out of just spreading it. Oh my God, did you guys hear that so-and-so did this with a Snickers bar? And, you know, obviously I don't, I don't feel like an enormous amount of guilt. I just, I was just participating in a drama, but I don't like it. No. And you know what? We, I, when you're saying that, I remember like, you know, doing the same thing when I was in college and like, oh, did you hear so-and-so slept with like three guys last weekend or something like, yeah. And it, and you just feel like, you feel like a freaking moron. Like you should actually be protecting this person. But you know what? Young people do stupid things. Okay. We all, I, if there's someone listening here that can, can send us a, an email and say, you know, I am the one person that never did a stupid thing as a teenager, send it on and good for you. But it, we, we do. We do things that are just idiotic, which is why grown-up people, who are the people on Twitter, I'm assuming, should remember that. They should remember that they, too, made mistakes and, 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 and say, okay, th- we made a mistake. Let's, let's do better. Let's try to help. Let's put in systems that do better, not that reward, that reward this sort of behavior and and then castigate the people that are trying to show humanity. This is awful. I mean, this is really this is really is kind of a crisis. And I and I know Twitter is not the real world. And I know it's a small. Yeah, that was not an accurate reflection of how people are receiving that story. I feel like we need to make that clear. I I, I feel certain that's going to be one of their most read stories of the year. And I think there's enormous number of people that are going to be to have a very different experience. I think that the Twitter the Twitter funhouse mirror did a real number on that story. These people must, it's just, I just, I really wish they'd start doing something else. Okay. So let's just, let's talk about some other things. There was a Michelle Goldberg piece that I found very fascinating last week that I wanted to talk about. It's called the future isn't female anymore. And Michelle Goldberg is a New York Times columnist. She preceded me at Salon, so I have some familiarity with her work going way back. I've always been impressed with her with her chops. 
I don't always agree with her. She also wrote a lousy Amber Heard column this week. But but this piece I really liked. And I think Michelle Goldberg is really good on feminist uh, in battles, you know. Mm -hmm. And... So, you know, she starts out by talking about this new buzzy literary journal called The Drift. And there's a whole issue that is about feminism and how it's grown stale and somewhat embarrassing. Um, And it had fails to speak to the realities of many women's lives and it lacked a vision of a better world. And, you know, in some ways, this is just fashion. This is just things falling in and out of fashion. Exactly. Feminism hit its stride, like this sort of fourth wave or whatever wave you want to call it, about 10 years ago. You know, it's about 2012 that a lot of these feminist blogs are really gaining steam. There are things like, um, you know, in 2014, I think Beyonce is performing in front of a big lit up sign that says feminist. Uh, there's expl- an explosion of what uh, we might call market feminism, where all these different in, in the same way that you saw Black Lives Matter in influence commercials and corporate statements. Uh, there was a little bit of a precursor to that in in this way that all these um all these corporations were suddenly lining up to seize on this empowerment message. And there was empowerment, everything, you know, empowerment, uh, sneakers and empowerment candles. And, um, it was really hard to tell which part of this, uh, was about freeing women and which part of this was enslaving them in a (laughs) corporate, uh, in in a sort of materialist, cycle of want. Uh, but that's certainly true in any, any American story. Uh, so anyway, some of this is, is, is fashion and, and, and that, you know, a younger generation looks up at the older people and says like, I don't want to do that. Whatever you did, it's not cool. So if my older sister was walking around in her, this is what a feminist looks like t-shirt. Um, I want to walk around in a shirt that says, this is not what a feminist looks like while I vape, you know, <laughs> I just made that example up. That's but. so good. Like, yeah, yeah, that's, 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 that's our next t-shirt. <laughs> this is not. Um, but I think one of the more shocking details in this is is the perception, uh, the way that, that uh, maybe this isn't shocking, but uh, it shocked me. Um, the, let me stop the uh, the prelude and just and just quote from this. So there's a <clears throat> there's a poll done by the Southern Poverty Law Center and something called Tulkin Tulchin Research, and they ask how many young people agree with the statement feminism has done more harm than good. What was astonishing was how many young Democrats agreed as well, while only four percent of Democratic men over fifty thought feminism was harmful. 46% of Democratic men under 50 did. Nearly a quarter of Democratic women under 50 agreed as well, compared with only 10% of those 50 and older. So what you see is in, in the population under 50 is a real growing sense that feminism is not working 
And I have a few theories on why that is, but I'd, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. So when you first were saying this, it, it was sort of like, yeah, there's all these like different waves of feminism. And it's sort of like, let's think of it as like, you're going to put different tires on the car, right? You had these kinds of tires and they work for a while. And then you realize, well, to get where I want to go, I want to put on these different kind of tires. And then that kind of feels worn out. Well, okay. When you have people saying like, you know, these younger generations, they're just not appreciating the fact that, you know, we were the people that got us here and those were the good tires. It's like, well, no, we need new, you're not going to like stay in with one thing because some other generation did it. And there are going to be different fights. I I kind of understand the, the poll where people are saying it's done more harm than good, but I think it might be more accurate to add the question is like, what is feminism fighting for right now? Okay, there definitely was a time in the 1960s and before where there were certain things that women like needed to be able to sign a contract legally, you know, or needed to like be able to inherit or or different things that like they just didn't have the right to do in certain places. They autonomy over their bodies. And I understand that Roe v. Wade is in trouble right now. But basically, what is it? that feminism is fighting for. Because I don't think people know. They're like, well, but what they do see is they see like a lot of flaps in the media and things that they might think are a little, um, they don't understand what these, these whatever what, what incidents are happening in terms of feminism, how it's helping them. Um, and I can see how they say like, I don't need it. I don't need, this is something our grandmothers needed. It's something our parents needed and, and identified with. I don't. Maybe if you could tell me what it is I'm supposed to be, um, you know, rooting for and allying with, then I would do it. But I don't have a sense of why this is necessary right now and why if I say, well, I don't know if I'm a feminist, then I am betraying feminism because you know that that's what happened. It's like, well, everybody should be a feminist. It's like, okay, well, what is what it does that right? mean? What does it mean? And that's why, you know, what am I signing about, on for? What's my what contract I, here? Well, What's the tiny print? Exactly. And I, I've had this myself. It's like, people are like, well, you have to be a feminist. I'm like, well, well, first of all, that's like saying I have to be a Democrat or I have to like live in some particular zip, zip code. First of all, I get to decide what I want to do, but also you have to tell me what it is. Like, what is it that you're demanding I be part of? And if I'm not, I'm part of the problem. So I, I think it's a very valid question for people. I think it's a bit of a, I think it's a bit of a leading question. Has it done more harm than good? I don't think people really thought too much about that question. Well, Sorry. There's, um, there's, it's really interesting to me that younger generations would say yes to that because they would have more distance from what the really in profound changes of feminism were, which came in the seventies. I mean, I do think that that this younger generation grew up inside those feminist gains without ever really reflecting on them. Things like the Equal Credit Opportunity Act in 74, things like which which basically means that, you know, it, it allows women to be able to get um, credit cards and not be discriminated against. Uh, there was times when women couldn't get cars in their own name. Sure. Uh, you know, Title IX opens the door to girls' athletics. I mean, basically, while a lot of people might associate Title IX with sexual assault cases, it actually is introduced in 72 as a way to give uh, equal attention to girls in sports. You can thank girls, like you can thank Title IX for girls volleyball, girls basketball, like all these things that have really changed the landscape of high school athletics for girls. Um, so, 
a lot of these younger people are, they grew up in a world where it was always like that and it just never even occurred to them it wouldn't be. I remember when I was, I was promoting my book when, uh, in Blackout in 2015 when I learned uh, that there had been bars that were closed to women as late as the 70s. So there were men's only bars in, in New York and they were like sit-ins. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't realize that. Have you ever been, I, I think I've been there once to a restaurant where they give the woman the menu that has no prices on it. Oh God, I've done, yeah, I've seen that. It's, I've, I've seen it's that. wild, isn't it? It's crazy. I'm like, okay, good, you pay. Um, but um, I think what you're saying here is like, people take things for granted. And that is absolutely true. Like I take for granted that I have a washing machine. Okay. Like I, you know, my great grandmother had to freaking, you know, slave and make her own bread and make everybody's clothes. I do take this for granted. So I, I maybe should have more gratitude, but the thing about it is like, yes, these things were fought for. And that is awesome. And there will be new things to fight for. But the idea that like, you're not grateful enough, you need to continue to show gratitude for the people that, that fought for the, the rights that you enjoy. Like, where, where does that end? Like, okay, like how many things and how often and how vocally do I need to be grateful for every good thing that's come before? It's, you know, it can get a little tiresome. People would be like, I want to kind of like fight for new things and be involved in my own life rather than just constantly paying obeyance and wearing it in a shirt. Also, I would like to just put on the record, I don't understand what the future is female means. Like, are we in the end times? Like, what, what does that mean? I mean, it didn't, it didn't have like a pie chart with it. it. You know, it was, it was a feeling. It was a, it was a feeling that people wanted to ride. It was the idea that I, I you know, I always thought it was tied to uh, the idea that Hillary Clinton was going to be president. Those things became popular. I think that was in the the idea was, um, you know, we're going to ride this feminist bubble into the next four years. And, uh, and obviously that's what it meant. Oh, okay. So now if you tie it to that, then I get it. It's saying like the future is female because we're going to have a female president. That I, okay. I, I just, think I that was the that. inspiration for it, but of course it had broader implications. The idea that women would be, you know, taking over businesses, they would be taking their place at the table. There would be, um, you know, I mean, one of the interesting things about uh, the last few years, uh, especially in that, in that like, that real high tide of feminism is that it was coinciding with a time when women were actually doing better than young men in terms of the number of enrollments in college. They were doing better in school. Uh, they were, there were, there were several statistics by which they were pulling ahead of boys by quite a large margin. I think that's still the case. In, I know yeah, that's no, that's, that has just gotten more intense, but, but one of the ways no, I, I, one of the ways where I think feminism was giving women a voice that they felt like they lacked was that in the dating world, I think a lot of women felt like losers in the dating world, that a culture of hookup sex, uh, rotating partners, uh, nudes used as collateral. I mean, this stuff is going on in 2014, 15, 16 was not serving them. And it was a real hellscape. 
I mean, I remember talking to a lot of young women around that time about how miserable the dating situation were was, and a lot of them were just ducking out of it entirely. Um, and Tinder had just been introduced and, and, you know, a lot of that stuff has, has toned down over the years, but when online dating began, it was like the wild, wild west out there. And it was really gross. I mean, I used to get, uh, like the, you know, Tinder was this, the idea was like, if you're on Tinder, you want to have sex now. It was bizarre. But wasn't that so again? Okay. So people asked the last episode, like what's, what are our, some of our, our differences? I've never been on a dating app. I've seen it once or twice on like on other people's phones. But my impression was there were like, there was like, okay, Cupid. And that was like to date. And then there was like maybe the ones for like specialty dating. But I thought that Tinder in my recollection was specific because I'm going to tell you why I remember this. I remember Tinder as coming out and literally being like the hookup thing. Like, and I thought it was like, okay, can you meet right now in the doorway at 67th Street and we can get it on? Like, that's what I thought it was. It was like, you could see where the person was and it was like, we're going to meet right now to fuck. I thought that's what it was. Tinder was. New, there was a, there was a really um, high profile Vanity Fair piece written by a writer whose name escapes me right now. But um, it was basically like the Tinder apocalypse is the name of it. And, you know, the, the thing is, the thing that I realized was, you know, look, it was the hot new app. Everybody be, wanted to be on it to see what it was like. And you can't generalize about something that 12 million people are on. There were financial bros that were picking up me, uh, women that night by sending them pizza emojis. That's like a, a detail that I remember from that story. And there were people that were meeting on Tinder and, and, and getting married. I mean, it was, it was simply, you know, technology is what we use it for. It is, you know, it can, like, I think it was when they introduced Tinder, the idea was like sex, 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 you can get sex now. And then as, as the, the app went on, it was sort of like the women on the app were like, yeah, we're not gonna do that. But, but there were certain women that did play along with that. I mean, look, it's, it's, Culture is a dance, man. And some people tango and some people slow dance. And I stood on the sides. <clears throat> I, I was going on Tinder and just watching, you know, like, I but I actually I met a really lovely guy on Tinder that's still a friend of mine. We dated for a little while. Um, and, you know, it, it, Tinder is used for all sorts of things. And one of the things that would happen was that when I told my friends I was on Tinder, they were like, oh, my God, how much sex are you having? And I was like, wow, zero. I mean, I, I don't go and have sex with strangers. That's not my jam. I'm using an app that is particularly good when you're traveling and particularly. Uh, and, and this is why the the certain advances of Tinder were then copied by Bumble. A uh, fascinating backstory about the creative Bumble, Bumble who once worked at Tinder and then sued them for sexual harassment. And <gasps> yeah, I wrote a story about Whitney Wolf Hurd, who is a former Tinder employee that was dating one of the guys and she sued him and left the company and started Bumble, which was a female friendly space. At the time, uh, it was a much needed market correction because Tinder really hadn't had any competition in the space. 
and then eventually things like Hinge come around. Like like the the sites are always leveling up, and I've spent time on all of them, and I can give you a dissertation on it some other time. But I did write a fun story for Texas Monthly about Whitney Wolfhard, who lives here in Texas. She lives in Austin, and we will um, have a, a link to that, of course. In the yeah, show notes. and so uh, back to the whole. Uh, you know, I felt like one of the things that feminism did and the Me Too movement did and the sexual campus, you know, sexual assault stuff did was that it gave young women a voice and a lane to basically, I don't know how I want to characterize this. I know, right? But (laughs) But to acknowledge that things were not okay. And so the 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 reign that they seized was one of legal ramification. You know, we're going to hit you through Title IX. Title IX, which had always been used for athletics, girls' athletics, that you had to have equal, you know, equal funding, got applied to you need to treat kids in schools differently, you know, and this is a really cultural change. I mean, this is also something that comes across in our cancel story that if you read it, you know, I'm sitting there going like, why are high school principals even like talking about what's happening over a weekend? Like, uh, why is this being? It's being demanded of them. I I know, but that's, that's weird for me as somebody that grew up in the eighties and nineties, you would never want to want to involve your teachers and principals and things that were happening over the weekend. Right. But, but you see, you're then stacking the deck, right? It's like, well, uh, I, I'm going to get my friends to be involved in this. Let's just take the case of Diego. We're, we're, we're talking about, you're going to, you're going to get your friends involved in this and the kids that don't even basically know you or Diego who are going to get in the bathroom. And now I've got a little bit of momentum and, and what am I going to do? Well, you know what? I'm going to get some other people that have more power, which are going to, it's going to make my movement even more powerful. And these literally, I mean, you know, God, she had a fantastic line at the beginning about, you know, the the two or three female counselors who were kind of like, I want to be your friend and bring you a hot cup of tea or whatever the, the yeah. characterization was. And then even these people who are like super trying to be allies, a word I now currently hate, um, to this like group of, of young people that are trying to, you know, destroy and get the boys you know, in whatever kind of trouble, even they leave their jobs because it's like, I can't, I can't it's too much. It, it becomes, a, a, anyway. But when you think about how a younger generation, particularly of men, has been disillusioned on the word feminism, which has long had its various kinds of baggage, and you see a shit show like the one that went down in that article, it's not hard to understand why young men would sort of turn on the idea uh, that feminism is a collective good. And, um, you know, the other uh, Michelle Goldberg has a couple of great pieces in this line that in this in this story that I just want to highlight for a second. One of them is that she says feminism is particularly given to cycles of matricide. What is liberating to one generation is often mortifying to the next. This Mm -hmm. is the same idea we were talking about in the idea of it going in and out of fashion. Michelle Goldberg is particularly versed in those different cycles. And she you, you learned quite a bit by reading this piece. Um, she talks about how a, a certain wave of feminism will rise up and by virtue of it spreading, it creates new taboos. And she has a line that I think is just so fucking important. And I'm, I'm so glad she has it here. 
and it's when feminism itself becomes an impediment to women talking about the truth of their lives, it goes into decline. Well, okay. So who would now decline to start to talk about the truth of their lives? Because they would become afraid that feminism or feminists were going to tell them they were doing it wrong. Yeah. And that, that this is, who, who, like, who decides? Like, who decides what, like, what feminism is? Well, feminism is a bit of an anarchic movement. I mean, especially in this fourth wave that never had a sort of uh, Gloria Steinem type figure that was a figurehead. It was this collective social movement. And it's very chaotic and anarchic structure, which didn't have hierarchies. That was one of the selling points I used to hear 10 years ago was like, nobody's in charge. We're going to build this together is one of the reasons why it is potentially declining because those things without a center, without a collective community, we get the example of Ellen Willis, an earlier feminist who met with the same women for 20, for 15 years. And that creates a kind of bonding that, you know, that like tweeting at each other in the meat space of, uh, of Twitter doesn't necessarily create those cohesions. So it's falling apart in in a way also because of one of its strengths, which, which is that it didn't have hierarchies, which is very true of a lot of these progressive movements. And you also said when you mentioned, and we'll get into it with Caitlin Flanagan's piece about um, about Cheryl uh, Sandberg. Sandberg? Is that right? Cheryl? Yeah. Sandberg. Yeah. Um, that it became in 2012, 2014, with Beyonce standing in front of the, all the lights that said said feminist, it became very commodified. It became like a not kitsch, but it became it was it it was like product based. It was it a was brand. In, it was a brand. It was influencer based. Well, what does that mean? Like, you know, if, if Paris Hilton is is flaunting her feminism, and by the way, buy my new perfume called, you know, Feminista, it's it's like, well, okay, I, I don't know, maybe it just becomes it becomes like, yeah, it just becomes a brand that you can like <laughs> dip into, and then you know what, you like something else next week. So it doesn't have gravity. Do you remember those years when there was like almost this like journalist sport to go after some high profile female celebrity and ask her if she was a feminist? And then if she said no, to just shame the hell out of her until she would come out and be like, now I am a feminist. I am a feminist. I have realized that all my and they did this to Taylor Swift and they did it to Katy Perry and they did it to Meryl Streep. They just like, oh, they loved it. We're just going to beat you into submission on this word and um which is like okay so i had so when my book came out in 2018 i did like i did a thousand interviews and all kinds of sites including like kind of like feministy kind of sites and one question on one was like you know cuz you're doing a lot of this by email are you a feminist and i just crossed out the question i'm like i'm not i'm not going there i'm not doing this you know i've <laughs> had a really interesting ride with that word because i grew up you know, in this sense of, of like really having absorbed this idea that I didn't need that and living in what I, I sort of assumed to be a post-feminist era. Um, and then by the time I got to Salon in 2007, eight, I was influenced and became friends with, uh, many, I think fascinating and incredibly smart, feminist writers that challenged me on this idea. And I eventually came to realize like, oh, no, I'm very proud of being a feminist. Um, and, and I saw it as a position of strength. 
And then about like probably in the last couple of years, I was just sort of like, I don't know if I want to be on this team anymore. You know, like this is, I don't know what I signed on for you guys. You guys aren't making me feel good about this stuff. I, I can't I can't explain your behaviors. And so you see the fashion uh, even in me, you know, and you could say I'm a flip flopper, which I, I am. I'm a proud flip flopper. Um, but, but my, my understanding of that word changes over time. And I have a great friend, I'm, I'm hearing the voice of my friend, Andrea, and we always have these, these civil disagreements about the word feminism, because for her, it was like coming home when she found that word in her, I don't know if it was high school or early college, but it was like, she finally had the framework that she wanted to see the world through and it gave her such strength and community. It introduced her to so many amazing voices. You know, for her, it was this like, this thing that she'll always be so grateful for. And, and that's great. I, just, I know, that's I know. Great. I just have a, I have a different, I have a different experience. I mean, to me, coming home was finding people like Dave Eggers or Dave Wallace that wrote in a way that spoke to my soul. Like it didn't, it didn't have these categories and it didn't feel like to be weird. Like it didn't, it felt genderless. Well, I would, you know, I've said this before, Mary Gateskill was the person that did that for me. I was like, wow, you can actually write this way. And in fact, she wrote one of the best um, Me Too pieces that I'm going to find on The New Yorker and and post it. And uh, she has a new Substack, which she just is, she's just kind of pulling around. Yeah. So, yeah, I just think, I think it's awesome for your friend, Andrea, that, that she feels this way. It's great. And, and it's great if a lot of people feel that way. But but to then turn it around and say, if you don't feel that way, you're part of the problem. It's just not true. You know what I'm going to do today? I have a seven-year-old coming over. We're going to get in the kitchen. We're going to bake a bunch of stuff. And I love baking. And I, for me, baking is, it's literally the only, one of the only things I can do where I don't need anything else going on. No TV, no radio, no podcast. I'm so engrossed in it. And I know that doing it also, then I give it away and what it, 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 feeds people in more ways than one. But I would never say, are you a baker? Wait, you're not a baker? Well, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you a baker? Don't you understand the goodness that baking is? It's like, you know, people have other things to do. They want to play lacrosse. They want to do needlepoint. They want to like work all their time to be a feminist. And that's great. But other people have other things that they feel very, very strongly about. Like, They're, you know, part of the reason that I think people get disillusioned with movements in general is when they start to attack their own. You know, you get to kind of eat your own thing and it just, well, it eats up way too much time. And, you know, to me, I don't want to be part of anything that doesn't... You're not the right, you mean, like, you're not the right kind of feminist. Yeah, exactly. You, you know, know, like, you know, you're not doing it right. This is, you know, it's just, it's too exhausting. I mean, it life is, is hard and I want to feel inspired by movements, not brought down and, and, and like like picked apart by them. There's a, there's a great line by the radical feminist, Ty Grace Atkinson, um, who was a second waiver from Louisiana. And she had a line, um, that, you know, sisterhood is powerful. It kills mostly other sisters. Yes. 
can we uh, can we jump over because we're 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 bumping up on our time here? Um, Caitlin Flanagan for a second to her yes, piece. Ma'am. So Caitlin Flanagan, as you know, we're gigantic fans of Flanagan, and um, she wrote a piece about Sheryl Sandberg, who was the what what was what was her position at at Facebook for? I thought she was like COO or CEO or yeah. Chief, CFO. Yeah. She there was a C and there was an O and there was something yeah. else. And at at Facebook, she wrote the book Lean In, which was like a this big you know gigantically seismic um, book, which at 2014... Sold 1.5 million yeah. copies. Now, not only did I not read it, it never occurred to me to read that book. So okay. I want to know how many of those 1.5 million people read that book. You know, who knows? It's it's like, the what is the book... Um, uh, you know, Amazon used to put out d- stats on the most downloaded books that people didn't read because they could see it because of the Kindle. Yeah, right. Or they, they read like 1%. Exactly. Like, like and, yeah. and I just remember the year that I found out about this, it was Donna Tartt's book, The Goldfinch. Which I that, actually loved. That was, which I've heard is an amazing book. I love Donna Tartt. I think that was the year it won the Pulitzer, and I think there were a number of people that bought it. And, you know, it's 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 like 900 pages. And yeah. so anyway. It's like it's like the Power Broker, the book about um uh, Robert Moses, and like everybody has it on their shelf, but nobody actually reads it. But yeah, it, I'm just gonna say Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In is one of the least read uh, blockbuster books of the past ten years. That's my hot sports opinion. So, so um, obviously Flanagan, she's a thinker and an essayist and, and an opinion person. And so she knew she was going to get asked to read it and write about it. It turns out she was, and she was going to do it for the filthy looker and she did it. And um, she was so shocked at how, uh, how boring and bad it was. And also how it was, it was so incomplete and like corporate speak and, and, and why, and, and the, I guess there was this idea that, well, you know, you got to lean into your job. You got to lean into your job in order to be successful and to like compete with the big boys and do all of this stuff. And I guess the idea that at that point, even though it was like less than 10 years ago was like, well, then axiomatically you will be taking time away from something else, which is not, is, which is not a concept I believe in. I believe in, I have a my own substate called Make More Pie. It's like, you just make more pie. It's not like, well, you can't do this other thing. You're going to be successful at work means you're going to ignore your kids. Um, but that was sort of the fear. There's always the fear that if you're going to be successful at work, then you're going to be unsuccessful as a mother. Um, in any case, uh, uh, Flanagan really really got down on on Sandberg and and what she's done since and what she did to the culture and the fact that she feels that she was just a a terrible a terrible person be, for for her for her promulgation of Facebook into our lives and and what and what she was doing while trying to appear a selfless and uh busy and successful businesswoman sorry i'm not characterizing that very well uh, no, I mean, you know, one of the the things about this is that, you know, it, it Lean In took place in the years follow. It came out in 2013. It is only a few years after the economic meltdown where a lot of these places like Goldman Sachs got huge bailouts. I think um, in certain areas of culture, uh, there were certain certainly starting to become a, a huge resentment towards these corporations. But Sheryl Sandberg continues to use Goldman Sachs as though it's like a really good thing that you want to be you want to be aiming for, which is one of the unreflected ideas that that 
Caitlin Dings in this book, in this, in, in her book, um, you know, she talks about like where, you know, this is a book that was about women's empowerment and where should they see, seek such power in the words of Caitlin Flanagan in the crackling hellfire of sweet C-suite America. <laughs> um, you know, and she goes on to say the simple truth is that you cannot simultaneously dedicate yourself to making untold fortunes for a giant corporation and to championing a social good. And she sees Sandberg as trying to ride that line and do both things at once. Um, and I, pretend that she is doing it. She's it, pretending that she's doing it. I'm just going to tell you, I mean, like a, a couple things that were grounded. This is a short piece. It's not, you know, it's not any kind of opus. It's, it's, but it's fun. And one of the, the two things that I, you know, for years, I've been wondering why there was such focus on the boardroom and CEOs and things like that. Like, I don't ever want to do that stuff. Mm-mm. Like, if you're trying to support women's lives and what women want to do, I don't know a lot of women that want to do that. And we also know that, like, a lot of CEOs and corporate board leaders and all that, there's, like, a really large overlap with sociopathy. Mm-hmm. Right? So, like, why, why you don't want... You why are you aiming for that? Why are you aiming for that? I mean, I guess that's the most money. So, if you want the most money, okay. Uh, go for it. Good luck. Enjoy it. Uh, but I don't want to be around that, and that's not what I want to do with my life. And... So anyway, I, I always thought there was this really interesting thing where women were bean counting at the top of the financial scale and they were ignoring at the bottom of the financial scale. In other words, I, I used to date a guy that worked in a factory and he would say that women would, you know, talk to him about like there's no equal representation and be like, well, we're hiring at the factory. And they'd be like, yeah, we're going to pass. <laughs> we're not. Mm-hmm. We're not interested in that. Um but I just have to say, Caitlin Flanagan is so delicious and funny in this. And she was cracking me up uh, with her sort of uh, zapping herself for totally selling out and doing the oh, review yeah. of this and cashing the check. And they call it the wrong thing. And she's like, that's OK. I love her for that self-awareness yep. and... Uh, She's just a, she's just a tardy minx. I'm going to tell you my favorite part of the piece was, of course, the end uh, when she was talking about, you know, the trades that people feel they want to make. And, you know, and she kind of, she kind of like um, uh, tied into this, this other current conversation that's happening now that apparently, you know, people in their thirties are, are crying on camera because they never want to have children because they're, you know, because of climate change and they are going to, they, they, the, the mm. guilt they would feel. And, and Which you didn't believe. What, you didn't believe this was true. This is I true. Don't, I, I, I don't believe, I think that people I mean, and then there was that video we we did talk about of, of of a father. He's talking about and he's crying. And a friend of mine's like, "Can you imagine how shit his kid kids feel? Like they're seeing like their father crying online because he feels so bad that he had children because of climate change." It's like, thanks a lot, Dad. But in any case, when I read this, I have a slightly different take on why people are saying it. I know they're tying it to climate change. They're like, "Well, you can't do it." Um, first of all, I've already told you that I believe these children are so brilliant, they'll figure out, you know, we've had problems in the world and we figure out solutions. And I believe that that will be the case too as we go forward. But I also think there's something else at play here. And Flanagan said it. She's like, you, when you talk a little deeper to these people, they're like, I also don't want to like, I don't want to give up my freedom. 
Completely. Like I want to keep having fun. I want to keep going out to the bar. I want to be able to like, you know, pick up and travel anytime I want. And it's like, that's fine. If those are the reasons you don't want to have children, you can just say that. You it's don't have to- noble. Look. No, right. You, you want to be noble instead, right? I actually went out uh, when I was in San Francisco covering the Boudin story. I went out to for drinks with a writer, pretty well-known writer who I will not name. Um, I'm going to count that he, as name dropping. Yeah, name dropping. And he basically was it's saying like, like- subtweeting name dropping. He was, I think he's 35, something like that. Oh, he's married. Age no kids. dropping. Your age no dropping. Gosh, now. And um, he, I, he said, no kids. He's like, but you know, we're kind of thinking about it because, you know, 10 years from now, do I want to still just be going out to the bar every week? And I'm like, yeah, there are other things to do. But Flanagan was like, you know, they think that kids, like having a kid is just going to be like, oh my God, it's going to be so besieging and boring and horrible. It's going to take all my, up all my time. And she's like, and let me tell you something. When these kids are small, it's so you just cannot believe some of your days. You're like, if I can't get outside and get a walk, I'm going to lose these, my mind with these two children. She's like, but you know what? You talk to any parent, pretty much any parent, and you say, what is the happiest time of your life? It's like, it's when those kids were little. And she tells a story of giving her twin boys going to the ice cream truck for the first time. Uh, do you have the article in front of you? No. Do you have it pulled up? Okay, I'll just paraphrase it then. You know, they, she takes them to the ice cream truck for the truck. They're probably like two. And she gives them each a pops, gets them a popsicle, which is in paper, of course, right? And they don't know what's inside. They've, they've never seen this thing before. And like the paper comes off and like the wonder, the utter wonder that is happening. And then the tasting. And she says, they're looking at me like I am the most miraculous, beloved, and like incredible thing in the world. And guess what? She was. I know that she was. And that is not something you are not going to receive that kind of sucker from knowing that the planet might not be quite as hot because of your great sacrifice. Have the kids. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Okay. Yeah, I, I, um, I'm gonna have to say that that, that we're we're running out of time here, so yeah. I, I, I sort of don't want to comment on what was actually like kind of a loaded part of the piece, which is, um, this this trend we have toward having fewer children and marrying less, which is meant to create more happiness, but a lot of times what it doesn't do is provide more purpose and meaning and anchors in life. So that we can discuss that another time. I certainly yeah. have a different story there than you do. Yeah. Um, but let's congratulate ourselves for not being in the crackling hell, hellfires of the C-suite. And and not, neither of us cried. I almost cried. Oh, wait. Give me a second. Okay. <laughs> oh, no. I'm just kidding. I, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't be broadcast news on this. I, I can do it. I can do it, Nancy. <laughs> Actually, I'm gonna find that broadcast. I always of oh, that. That's the one thing I, I love remember. that movie. It's incredible. We're gonna put a link. We put a link to because I'm sure a lot of people are like, "What? What is that?" But that uh, Holly Hunter getting up every morning and taking that moment had to do what she had to do. Well, I was thinking about the moment that William Hurt makes himself cry. Remember, that's the the drama oh. on which the movie pivots is that he has fake cried. He has faked oh. the news. Oh, in order I, to look more empathic. Oh. Yeah. I now see now I gotta rewatch it. That's not the point. That's such a good movie. Okay. All right, Sarah Hepla. I will uh we'll see. Oh my god, Nancy. What? What's the name of our podcast? (laughs) It's smoke if you got him. (laughs) You got it, babe. (laughs) Okay, bye. bye.